0: Hi, I'm Stephen Adams. My guest on New Waves podcast is the internationally celebrated Australian composer, Brett Dean. The occasion is the Australian premiere last week at this year's Adelaide Festival of his major new opera based on Shakespeare's Hamlet. And uh, fresh from the festival, Brett's kindly agreed to come into the studio and give the many of us who couldn't be there a taste of what we missed including a few musical excerpts from the world premiere of Hamlet that was last year recorded at the dress rehearsal for the world premiere at the Glyndebourne Festival in the UK. Brett Dean, welcome to the studio.
1: Thanks, Stephen. How was Adelaide? Adelaide was a blast, I have to say. I mean, it was just so thrilling. The production ostensibly, obviously, the same as in Glyndebourne, but also with a half-new cast... Um, some Australian singers covering themselves with glory, I have to say, and jumping in with a lot less rehearsal time than we had in Glyndebourne. But uh, it was so exciting. I was just thrilled with the results.
0: Fantastic. How did the audience in Adelaide respond, uh, I guess, compared to the Glyndebourne experience?
1: Well, they seemed to really go for it, and it was an extremely exciting buzz around. It was Yeah, very gratifying, one of those things as a composer you you do dream of.
0: Well, maybe we should uh, set the scene for listeners right away and hear a bit of the music. We'll play um, some of the soliloquy music from the original production. Can you set the scene for that?
1: Yeah, so, um, I mean, through the libretto of Matthew Jocelyn, a lot of the action has been compressed various Scenes of the original have been pushed into single scenes here, and here we have in scene four, in our version, a compressed but still, I think, very poetic version of the soliloquy, the the most famous soliloquy, that is, being to be or not to be. And some of this text has been adapted from the lesser known first quarto version of Hamlet, from 1603, which is quite contentious as it's often thought or argued to be not from Shakespeare, but then people do argue whether Shakespeare himself even existed as we understand him. So, you know, who's to say? But um, so this is Hamlet's sort of musings on life, death, and love, and all manner of things, and you'll hear. The echoes of uh, Ophelia in the background. And she takes a line from this first quarto version of the soliloquy, namely, but for this, the joyful hope of this, which indicates that this version has a little more optimism in it than the sort of known later version of the soliloquy, that um, maybe in pontificating upon death, maybe there's still some hope for Hamlet
2: who's Puss-
0: So listeners might be surprised to hear that your Hamlet in that scene doesn't actually get to say the line to be or not to be, at least not in so many words.
1: No. Well, I mean, one of the things about the, the preliminary thoughts to, to taking on this project, we in discussing it with Matthew Jocelyn, uh, whom I mentioned earlier – one of the things we talked about most was exactly this soliloquy because it brings with it such a burden of expectation. You know, it's, it's, they're among the most quoted and known lines of, of verse in the English language. And um, so that's how it also sort of dawned on us that the early, this lesser-known early corto, actually sort of bypasses some of that. It's familiar yet different and... It's very pithy. It's, you know, half the length of the the text that is normally the basis for most Hamlets that you see on stage or on, on film. And indeed, it does sort of change some of the, the well-known words.
0: The themes that you're working with, we're we still sort of talking primarily about a narrative, I guess, of love, betrayal, revenge, and also this, these kind of critical weaknesses that prevent the hero Hamlet from acting and his his love ophelia also sending her to her death.
1: Yeah, I mean we're we're still talking about a piece that is about the fulcrum of existence and as you say all of those things the to be or not to be and love or not in love trust or lack of trust you know that you're on this borderline always with with hamlet and so it, for me, also was crying out for, for musical treatment because that offers so much, the this sense of contrast and teetering on one side of that fence or another. You know, is the ghost really there or not? And what is the nature of that whole dimension? It's just so, so full of rich theatrical possibilities. And, uh, you know, it was incredibly difficult to work out also what do we keep and what do we have to discard because obviously also a a full performance of the complete text takes four to five hours on a spoken stage let alone finding time to fit music and and singing of text into that so we had to reduce the, the original text substantially and also in the process it was a thing of using the different versions anyway.
0: Talking about the potential for the story and the themes for these, I guess, theatrical musical opportunities puts me in mind of something that quite a few people have been saying, and which of course was also written about the work in some of the pre-publicity, that your treatment of the work in a way brings new layers to the Shakespeare story, that this this musical treatment and theatrical treatment makes the story in a sense even more rich or multi-layered.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, that's that's a great compliment, which I'm I'm incredibly touched that it has brought about that response. I mean, as I say, it, I felt right from the start that it had enormous theatrical potential. It is one of the great works of theatre anyway, and encouraged also by Matthew Jocelyn's incredible finesse and feel for theatre and Neil Armfield's experience with the play dating back to you know a a landmark production that he did of the play at Belvoir Street in the early 90s for me it sort of demanded exploring the possibilities in sound of of immersing the audience in a theatrical soundscape and part of the way in which that was achieved was through some electronics, um, mostly percussion sounds that were then treated in the studio together with my partner in crime, Bob Scott, and with members of the Sydney Symphony. Actually, we recorded in the Carriage Works in the same week that I was doing one of the Carriage Works concerts there in 2016 with members of the SSO. And that in itself is always incredibly stimulating because you you can take sounds and turn them into whatever you like with the benefit of of a, a great producer like Bob, but also to bring some of the musicians out of the pit and into the theatre. So we had two satellite groups, we called them, that are placed up in high balconies. Uh, I must say also the Glyndebourne Theatre was incredibly ideal for, for such manipulations because it had some beautiful open spaces at the very top of the of the balconies, which gave the players plenty of, of room for percussion setups, etc. But also, it's got this beautiful sort of acoustic. It's it's almost like a concert hall. It's wood everywhere, and. Yet they were hidden from sight, but distinctly audible, and so it was. It was very exciting in that regard. It was a little trickier in the Adelaide Festival Theatre, but in the end, um, they found some lighting booths that were, were almost like silo spaces that uh, just had enough openings to into the theatre to for the sound to find its way into the into the mix, and so that was also. Worked out incredibly well in the end. I've always been inspired by these words that the composer, the German composer Wolfgang Riem, said to me years ago just remember, Brett, that all music is theatre. And um, nowhere has that resonated with me more strongly than writing this piece.
0: The next scene we're going to hear a little from is The Ghost's Entry. Can you tell us how that one works? Perhaps talking about some of those layers.
1: Yeah, well, you'll hear a big upsurge in the orchestra that is also supported by a whole lot of extra percussion that was recorded and treated separately. And then this moment of highest fear and and trepidation, actually words of Hamlet's, but in this instance put into the mouths of the Glyndebourne Festival Chorus, angels and ministers of grace defend us at the moment that he actually sees the ghost of his father. It's, you know, one of those great theatrical moments and so we certainly wanted to pull out all the stops to create a coup de théâtre.
2: Methinks
3: I see my father Well, my lord In my mind's eye, Horatio My lord
2: My lord,
3: I see I saw, my lord, I think I saw him yesterday night. Saw, saw my lord, a figure like the father of that point. My father, where was this? My lord, upon the platform where we watch the earth as you let me hear. Did you not speak to it? My lord, I did. But answer
2: made it is
3: As I As believed too. I my mean, It would have blush, amazed you. I so saw you face. Yes, my lord. I from drowning in. my and anger. To oh, hell! is such a game. And give me
2: what I need, my lord. Oh. Oh. my lord, my lord, my lord. Look it, oh, my lord
0: So, we heard there just a little of the uh, Hamlet opera there, the, the ghost entry and the reaction there. And you mentioned uh, while we were listening, Brett, something about the chorus in also being in the pit.
1: Yeah, well, you were asking about the layers. And one of the other devices, if you like, that I explored was having voices also in the orchestra pit. So, there was a, a line of eight singers the so-called semi-chorus, that in a way were a link between stage and and orchestra pit, uh, that you had also human voices coming from down where the the orchestra is playing, but also a link between words and music. And so they're sometimes singing words, but sometimes, as you heard in the the lead-up to that ghost climax, uh, they're they're just making vocal sounds as well. And so they're an extension of the orchestral palette, if you like, and uh, adding a kind of instrumental and vocal quality at the same time.
0: You've also got some very particular soloists in some of the lead roles. And perhaps we should particularly talk about Alan Clayton in the the role of Hamlet.
1: Yeah. Yeah, Well, it was, I mean, obviously also a fantastic thing that he was able to... Come out to Australia and, and s- recap the role in Adelaide. Um, Alan had been on board for the project right from pretty much the outset. As soon as the the subject matter had been chosen, um, it was an inspired choice by the the casting directors from from Glyndebourne. I'd I'd met Alan by that stage, and we'd actually taken part together in a performance uh, in the Maribor Festival where I was joining the ranks of the ACO and he was one of the soloists in Beethoven 9. We first chatted then about the possibilities of the opera and then later met in Melbourne when he was here for the Melbourne Festival. And I had a chance to talk with him at greater length and also record his speaking voice. He recorded a couple of the, the Hamlet soliloquies for me. And through that, I, I already got to know something of the immense flexibility of his vocal range, not only sung but spoken, and the, his ability to, to modulate his voice through all sorts of different emotions, but then working with him more closely already in a, in a series of workshops about a year and a half before we started rehearsals, the full sort of potential of what he could offer revealed itself. And it's just extraordinary. I mean, he has such a stage presence and is such a fine actor that, um, you know, I'd pay money to see him play Hamlet in a spoken theatre any day. He somehow got into that vulnerability, but at the same time wit and passion and weakness and strength of this character so... So fully it was. It was just an amazing thing to see it developing in the rehearsal studio already last year in Gleinborn, and then to see him revive it with also the added confidence of a a full season of performances behind him and and the success that that he'd had with it. It was. It was thrilling.
0: I I really wish I had been there. There were, of course, some other sort of fairly prominent singers in some of the roles in the original production, uh, some of whom then weren't here in Adelaide, and those roles had to be, in a sense, adapted. And I wonder what kind of challenges that presents. So, for example, in writing the role of Ophelia.
1: Yeah, well, Ophelia was originally written for the great Canadian soprano Barbara Hannigan, who then brought, again, in her own way, also an immense amount of personality to the role, like Alan also, a complete stage animal and amazingly inventive. And, you know, in both cases, it's true and I think fair to say that they brought as much to the staging of the character as, as Neil Armfield himself did, and that, that it was a true collaboration between them in shaping the nature of their characters. In both cases, and, and also specifically in Barbara's case, given that she hasn't been able to come out to to Adelaide to reprise a role, it's then interesting for me to see how that how that travels with a different singer. So Lorena Gore took over the role of Ophelia in, in Adelaide, and Lorena and I had worked together before, of course, because she was Honey Barbara in Bliss, uh, which was premiered back in 2010. So I, I knew enough about Lorena's voice to n- know and feel instinctively right from the start that she could do a terrific job of Ophelia. A role that was so specifically tailor-made, in a way, to Barbara, it was then interesting for me to see how that would travel and translate. Lorena was just simply stunning in the in the role and she, you know, brought vocally some other aspects to it. Her voice has also developed quite wonderfully and extensively in those seven or eight years since we last worked together. And Although the role, as I say, was very much shaped by Barbara Hannigan, she then brought very much her own personality to it. And I think that's the the great thing about, and the serendipitous thing about choosing such a, a great piece of theatre in the first place is that everyone has their idea about what these, these people are going through and, and what are the most important emotions at any given time. And, and somehow the, the piece allows for people to have different takes on it at, at a different time uh, and in a different way. And, you know, that's that's pleasing to see that, you know, it doesn't have to be then with its dedicatees only. It can travel and be interpreted by others as well.
0: In this case, what we have is um, the original singer, Barbara Hannigan, here in the role of Ophelia
2: No! no!
0: Hannigan in the role of Ophelia from the original Glyndebourne production last year in the UK. As well as those vocal colours, there were other colours brought to this, and they're not perhaps often used in contemporary opera and certainly not in classic 19th century opera. You had a couple of countertenors in the in the uh, lineup. What made you use those voices or perhaps those individuals?
1: Well, I mean, in the main cast of, of the play... There are only two female figures, Ophelia, whom we've just heard, and Gertrude, Hamlet's mother and queen of Denmark.
0: So this this almost goes to the original reasons for using countertenors in some degree,
1: isn't it? Well, exactly. I mean, you know, well, in Shakespeare's time, even the, the women were played by men. Certainly, I found coloristically and compositionally necessary to explore other voice types. Hence, also extensive use of not one but two choruses, and and even there, it was was a matter also for Matthew Jocelyn as librettist to find a compelling reason to have a chorus, because Hamlet in itself isn't necessarily a hugely peopled play. It's it's very much about the dealings of individuals. But uh, I I feel that he made the case for that incredibly theatrically and incredibly compellingly, and it you know, gave us more sonic possibilities, certainly. But then also we talked for quite a while about the nature of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, these two schoolmates of Hamlet's, as as Matthew himself described them, the syncopated sycophants then of, of Claudius's court, because they very much become part of the intrigue. In the original, of course, they're sent off to England with Hamlet with express orders to have him assassinated and fall foul of that plan themselves but uh, in our version they stick around and become increasingly involved in the in the intrigues of the house of claudius and you know meet meet a, a nasty end in the final showdown but um, above all also we talked quite a bit about what voice types and had also toyed with the idea of them being you know, a hetero couple, for example. So it gave us this wonderful chance to explore, you know, as you, as you point out in, in contemporary opera, not such a common colour. And, uh, you know, it was wonderful to have these, these two great countertenor voices as part of the show.
0: It's a fantastic array, a rich array of colours in the whole piece by the sound of it. And we're getting just a taste of that here today. I'm wondering about the, the future, I guess, of Hamlet and other, other things beyond Hamlet. Are there more productions in the pipeline?
1: Well, I'm happy to say that, yeah, there, there are various things in discussion. None of them are at the stage that can be announced publicly at this stage, but I'm in discussions about possible productions of the piece already as early as the end of next year in Germany and beyond elsewhere in, in Holland and, and in the United States. So... You know, it's really great when you put so much work into something that it doesn't just have one outing and then sits in a cupboard and that it also, above all, has found such resonance with audiences, critics and, and most importantly, performers alike. Again, in in Adelaide, I I got the very strong sense that the singers themselves and and the players of the wonderful Adelaide Symphony, who did a fantastic job with Nicholas Carter at the helm, that, uh, you know, people really got a lot out of the of the challenge
0: has it given you a a taste for more opera writing i mean, with a second opera under your belt
1: oh look undoubtedly it is you know it's the supreme discipline because also i mean one of the reasons one searches for color is that it is it's a it's a tricky thing to bring off an entire evening of one's own music for an audience um and particularly a challenging piece of new music you've you've got to dig deep to to find colors in order to as much as anything else keep it keep it interesting and with variety but through that i i do find that it's one of the the most well the steepest learning curves and i got into composition in order to to learn more about music and how it comes to be and what it's made of and uh and the, the sort of richness of this collaboration, first of all, with Matthew Jocelyn, but again, and for the second time with Neil Armfield, because he directed Bliss as well, and all of these extraordinary artists that have been part of it, both in Glyndebourne and here in Australia, it, it's incredibly inspiring. And it, the great thing is that it takes you out of your studio and makes sure that you're a social being that interacts with others as a composer. It's,
0: Uh, Brett Dean, thanks so much for taking the time to talk. We're going to wrap our conversation with a little bit more music, Uh, some of those countertenor colours. Can you tell us what this scene is about, the wager?
1: Yeah, well, as I mentioned, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern don't head off to England in our production. They stick around and are part of the increasing levels of intrigue that are happening in in the house of Elsinore. And here they take on Uh, the role of another character that appears late in Hamlet, namely Osric, whose job it is to point out the details of the wager that the king has set on the fencing competition that's to take place between Hamlet and Laertes. It's also a last bit of lighter comic relief in, in what is, of course, a a fairly bleak story, let's face it, and it's a last chance also for Hamlet in the in the wonderful form of Alan Clayton to take the piss.
3: What imports the nomination of this gentleman? I great No there the fancy Six of horses And six French swords And three delicate carriages Of very liberal conceit that's the Frenchman. It's the Danish, <laughs> And how's the wager? My lord, the
2: king, the king,
3: king, sir, laid, sir. the king,
2: sir, laid, And the wager, sir, had laid, sir. And the wager, sir,
3: Can see, can't
2: control, see, when can see, when we see